0: This is the University's Seventh-day Adventist Church in the sunny Orlando, Florida. We are glad that you are listening to our weekly podcast. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and challenged by our message today. And may God lead you in the next step of your growth in Him. Here is our featured sermon. Aren't you glad that miracle happened? It took a miracle. Hey, it took me back years. I think I heard that hymn for the first time sang by Elder Falkenberg. Remember him when he used to be our General Conference President? Wonderful, beautiful voice raised singing the miracles of salvation. Happy Sabbath Church! I'm glad to be with you today. It wasn't the original plan. You were supposed to have somebody else here but he was very tired (laughs) and he called me Tuesday, and said, I don't think I'm going to have the energy to preach. Would you be willing to go and be a designated hitter? Of course, of course, for the university church, anytime. When I said that on Tuesday, I didn't know what God had planned. And so Thursday at noon, I get a phone call, and you guys are going to be probably the first church to know this. This may be the last time I'm standing with you. I accepted a call from the North American division to go work for the chaplaincy ministries. And so I would really appreciate your prayers. Um, I'm still shaking. I'm still shaking. I don't know. I was sharing with brother before we were coming in. I can think of a thousand people who can do that a lot better than me. And I'm only praying that the Lord will use me. So keep my family and keep us in your prayers thank you <laughs> hey if we don't see each other here you know we're going to see each other and there will be no more goodbyes and no more separations and eternity will not be enough to say thank you to our Lord Jesus Christ so today I'm going to talk to you about friends you know it's kind of difficult to talk about friends in, in the age of Facebook and Twitter And things like that. Are you with me, church? You know, you talk about friends in the age of Facebook when friendships are just clicking on a little icon in a computer and we become friends on Facebook. You know, are those real friends? Hey, I just realized there may be some Facebook friends that are real friends and good friends. I mean, I'm... I may have one of the one of the things that has me scared about this new transition is that I will have to move to Southern California And I've never been to Southern California except for 10 days. I was there for the two years ago I don't know the place. I've heard about you know Loma Linda and all that. I mean what Adventists haven't heard about Loma Linda? Um And a Facebook friend turned out that lives in that area and uh, is good friends with my wife, and her husband is a pastor, and we've been good friends for a long year. So, huh, guess what? Now I have a place to stay while I find for, while I look for a place to live. So, you know, maybe Facebook friends are not that bad at all, after all. But, you know, we, we, we kind of have defined friendship in a different way, you know? The Bible is clear. Let's go back to our scripture reading. In the book of Proverbs 18, there are so many good lessons in the book of Proverbs. But it is very, very simple. The The biblical definition of friendship is very, very simple. As a matter of fact, Solomon breaks the number one rule of writing. You cannot use the term to define in the definition. But he does that. And there must be a reason why he does that. Proverbs eighteen twenty four. he says, a man, and you know, you know, in this era of political correctness, when he talks about a man here, he's not talking about a man only talking about males. He's talking about man, about in the terms of mankind, humankind, it includes men and women. So, we can say a man or a woman who has friends must first himself or herself be friendly. But then he goes beyond that. And the person who read our Bible text forgot the little part, the second section of the Bible text that says, "But there is a friend who is sticks closer than a brother." First We must show ourselves to be friendly. And second, a real friend sticks closer than a brother or a sister. I was having a conversation this week with a patient in the hospital who was telling me, everybody has abandoned me, even my own family, everybody. This woman came to the hospital because she's having breathing problems. And I went to visit with her. Her husband abuses her physically and psychologically and emotionally. And she ended up in the hospital because he gave her a beating. And you know what? Her family turned their backs on her. Because you don't do anything to solve this problem. Has it ever occurred to you that maybe this woman is stuck in a relationship and she cannot get out unless she gets the help she needs? And will she get it from her family? No. Her family turned her back on her. So there's a chaplain there that now has to pick up the friendship banner and try to help her get connected with whatever she needs in order to break the cycle of abuse that she is having. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother or a sister. I'm not claiming that I'm perfect. I'm not. I will never be. But there is a call there. Don't you think? There's There's a statement that's very important for us. There is something that happens in there that we must learn. And it is that we are friends. We are to be friends of the world. We are to be the ones who take them to the places where they need to be. We are the, those who need to answer the call and need, and need to say, as I was closing, as I was making a comment at the closest of the Sabbath school, we need to say, I am the missionary. I am the one who's going to go. If every one of us says, I am, then there will be a grade, we are. Does that make sense? Well, talking about friendships and talking about the role of a friend, I found this beautiful, wonderful story in the New Testament. That is the place where we will start our message today, or we have already started, but that is the place where we will base the most important parts of our sermon today. It's in Book of Mark, chapter 2. Come with me to the Book of Mark, chapter 2. And as you see in the program, those of you who got a copy of the program, the title of our sermon is Rooftop People. Actually, I wanted to say we are the rooftop people. And when you read the story and when you remember the story that we're going to be talking about, you will know what what I am referencing here. Mark chapter 2 tells us a story. begins by saying, and again he entered Capernaum. After some days, I'm reading from the New King James Version, and it was heard that he was in the house. Let's stop there and talk a little bit about this. He entered into Capernaum, and it was heard that he was in the house. Why is it that it is referred as in the house? It doesn't tell us any more about that. You know, details of the Bible stories are, are the good things preachers uh, try to find. Ditos that are not there, that are, but are there. Okay, so where is Jesus? In which house is he? I mean, in Capernaum, there must be more than one house. I mean, what makes a town a town? Lots of houses? Two houses would make, would two houses make a town a town? Probably, probably. But in a house by itself, can it be called a town? Probably not. So at least you have two houses. And when, they say, when, when Mark says Jesus came in the house, what a conundrum. Which one? And, why, and you ask, why do we need to know which house? Have you ever been lost trying to find a place? If you don't know where you're going, you're already there. So why is it important, or why is it that... That Mark is not giving us that detail which house is Jesus in we know which house because we can read it in Luke that says that Jesus was in Peter's house Simon Peter's matter of fact I think it a little further down no no, no not here now why is it the house first of all remember I think I've spoken about this here before remember that every one of the gospel stories is told from the perspective of someone And you remember, I told you this before, and you've heard it before, but I'm going to say it anyways, because it is my sermon, I get to say what I want to say. Um, Remember that Mark is writing his gospel from the story of, who told him the story that he's telling? Peter! Peter is telling him everything that happened. So, no wonder... Peter assumes that whoever is reading the story remembers and knows that who's telling the story is talking about his own house. What is interesting is, and this is something that you can find if you do a little bit more digging into the text, is that the Greek word, rather rather than being translated the house, should be translated my house. Because it includes the possessive term in that. So... Now that I've shown my scholarly knowledge, let's move on. Immediately, when he was in the house, immediately, verse 2, many gathered together so that they were, there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. What is interesting about this is that you find that this story kind of repeats itself. Everywhere Jesus went, people went looking for healing. Because you see... I have learned that we always start looking for Jesus because of selfish reasons. Talk about this. Well, I've already said this before also. I know that. But let's, let's think about this. All of us accepted Jesus as our Savior. First and foremost, because we want to be saved. Amen? Second, because we want to go to heaven. Third, because we want to live forever. Does that make sense? Ain't that a bunch of selfish reasons? We want to be safe, we want to go to heaven, we want to live forever. We have a need. And I know, guys, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it's wrong. It's nothing bad, it's just, it just is. We all go looking for Jesus because we have a need. C.S. C.S. Lewis said, man's heart has, a, has an empty space that only God can feel. And man, have you ever felt like you are hungry, like you are empty and you need something to fill it up? So it makes perfect sense. When when people heard Jesus was in the house of Peter, they went there and there were so many that there was no space to come in. There was not even near the door. Because first of all, a house is not a hospital. A house is just a house. And second of all, a house like the one that Peter was, was the house of a poor man. He was just a fisherman. So it wasn't a big, huge house, house like the ones we have in Lake Nona. No, it was a small house. It was a small house. And people came from all over the place looking for what? For healing. And not only they were getting healing. Luke says, when he tells this story, he uses this wonderful, wonderful phrase. He says, and he healed them all. What does that mean, that he healed them all? What is all? What does it mean, all? It means that everyone that entered in that house, looking for healing, walked out being healed. Walked out healed. Wow! Ain't that wonderful? And then at the end of verse 2, there's a statement that says, and he preached them, and he preached the word to them. Then they came, verse 3, then they came to him, bringing a paralytic, who was carried by four men. Interesting. The story's getting interesting. Now, they. Who's they? It doesn't say. And I often wonder why it doesn't say, it doesn't mention the four people that brought their friend to Jesus. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was laying. Who is, right now, let's talk about who is the most important person in this story? Not Jesus. The paralytic? Nope. The friend's? How many times are they mentioned in this part of the story? Let's count. And then verse verse 3. And then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. By four men. Could be also counted as a a they. Can Can it? Okay. But let's just skip it. Verse 4. And when they could not come here near him Because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed in which the paralytic was laying. How many times? Is that important? If you want something to to be taken, to pay attention to something in the Bible, you just repeat it. So it is important. Why is it important? Are you ready? Hold on to your hats. This is the reason why it is important. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith? Hold it, hold it just a minute. Because the, the, the church I go to, the people I've heard preach to me, the people that have talked to me have told me that if I want a solution to my problem, I have to have faith. If I don't have faith, then God would not answer my prayers. That's what I heard. Has anybody heard that before? But what is this saying? When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your your sins are forgiven. What is the reason for the healing? The faith of whom? So now I understand when Proverbs said that there's a friend that clings closer to a brother, now I understand what this means. Now I understand what the Bible says when it says that there are times when I'm going to have to force them in. Remember that? Now I understand. I heard a song the other day. A beautiful gospel song that says, I have been there right where you are. He said, the the, the word said. I've been there right where you are. And I have been without strength. And since you don't have the strength, I will pray for you. You understand what I'm trying to say here, church? We can see these things from both sides of the story. First of all, there's a paralytic who is having problems. Hey, he's living in an age where there are no wheelchairs. He's living in an age where if he cannot work with his hands and feet, he is nobody. There ain't no um, handicap act. What's the name of that law? You know what I'm talking about. The law that we have that protects the people that have disability act. The disability act. Thank you very much. My mind sometimes goes crazy. There ain't none like that. Nothing like that. No ramps to get into the houses. If there are stairs, I mean, nothing. Everything he goes to, he needs to be carried. He's lived his life depending on others. And even his sanity, even his healing, cannot be performed unless somebody helps him. Talk about being stripped of your identity and your life. Look how Sister White puts this. He, she tells the story beautifully in The Desire of Ages, chapter 26, page 267. In the healing of the paralytic at Capernaum, Christ again taught the same truth. It was to manifest his power to forgive sins that the miracle was performed. And the healing of the paralytic also illustrates the precious, other precious truth. It is full of hope and encouragement. And from its connection with the calling, with the cavilling of Pharisees, it has a lesson of warning as well. Check this out. We have known this. We know this for a while, For a fact. We have heard this before. The Bible tells, tells the Jews. I'm talking about the Jews at the time. The Bible text talks to the Hebrews and told them, if you get sick, who do they need to see? Where were they supposed to go if they were sick? They would go, go to the priest, to the temple. They would go there, and the the people in the temple would be the ones administering health care. They'll be the administrators of AHS today, probably, you know, something like that. Look what Sister White says. I love this. Like the leper, this paralytic had lost all hope of recovery. His disease was the result of a life of sin, and his suffering were embittered by remorse. Two things important here. His disease was the result of a life of sin. And two, his sufferings were embittered, embittered by remorse. Remorse. He had long before appealed to the Pharisees and doctors. Are you with me, church? He had long before appealed to the Pharisees and doctors, hoping for, from, for relief from mental suffering and physical pain. So the guy is having problems. He is problem. He has a problem, physical problem. He has an emotional problem. And he had gone to the ones that were supposed to administer the solution for him. He had done the right thing. He did the wrong thing to get sick. Clearly. But he went looking for somebody to help him solve the two problems that he had. His physical problem and his emotional problem. And he went to the right place. But look what it says. But they coldly pronounce him incurable. He was looking for hope, and what happened? They just crushed his hope and abandoned him to the wrath of God. You ever heard that before? People looking for healing to their physical and emotional and spiritual needs, and we turn around and we say, you smoked all your life, now you got cancer, you come to the hospital asking for help. That sound familiar? The Pharisees regarded affliction as an evidence of divine displeasure. And they held themselves aloof from the sick and the needy. The ones that were called to provide for the needs of those who needed. What were they? They were aloof and displeased. Yet often these very ones who exalted themselves as holy were more guilty than the sufferers they condemned. The palsied man was entirely helpless and seeing no prospect of aid from any quarter, he had sunk into despair. Then he heard of the wonderful works of Jesus. He was told that others as sinful and helpless as he had been healed, even lepers had been cleansed. And the friends who reported these things. Now, once again. And the friends who reported these things. encouraged him to believe that he too might be cured if he could be carried to Jesus. You see the missionary overtones of this? None of them could heal him. None of them had the power or the authority to heal them. But they heard about someone who was healing people. Hopeless people that needed help. Could find hope. Lepers who were shunned out. And abandoned by their families and their communities. Found new communities. New love. Found acceptance. Those who were untouchable were being touched. Even those who nobody would ever wonder to touch them. Would come to Jesus and touch the hem of his garment. And be healed. Hey there's hope. And listen to me. I may not got it. But I'll take you there. I may not have the power or the authority to heal you. I may not have the power or the authority to bring you to salvation or bring you to healing. But I'll take you to the one who can heal you. And do you see now why Jesus looked up that way? And he saw the faces of those men. He never saw the face of the paralytic one. He saw the faces of those men. And because of their faith, he turned around and said, Now... Your sins are forgiven. You see that? The friends who reported these things encouraged him to believe that he too might be cured if he could be carried to Jesus. But his hope fell when he remembered how the disease had been brought upon him. He feared that the pure physician would not tolerate him in his presence. So maybe he started giving excuses and saying, oh, um, I got to go to the doctor this week. I have chemotherapy tomorrow. Um, uh, I need to go to the office of Social Security. There, there's some mixed up over there with my check and it's not coming. He started giving excuses. You see, because we always find excuses when we feel guilty because we would try never to face our guilt, because we are afraid of the results. Yesterday, I went to a place, a beautiful, wonderful place, and it was interesting that we heard something that happens often. You know how many times we do um, health fairs for the community? And a lot, I get a lot of phone calls from churches who want to get the truck from Florida Hospital that does mammographies and bone density tests and things like that. And I found out, I, I heard yesterday that there's something interesting. Whenever we bring that truck around, the compliance in follow-up, because, you know, there may be um, people come and they go to the truck and they get the test done and they, they find something, you know, in the, in the tests that may not be right or may not be may not look right, and they have to follow up. The compliance of patients that come out of the truck is 0%. And studies have shown that it is 0% because people don't want to face the reality. And tra- th- answer me this question. I mean, maybe, perhaps I'm biased. I've been a chaplain for 16 years, pastor for 26, but perha- perhaps, yeah, I'm, let me claim it. I am biased in this one, but let me, t- let me ask. How, how is it that ignoring a problem will solve a problem? Running away from it, will it solve it? Don't we do that often? Well, the story goes to finally express that the, bro- the friends brought the man to Jesus. And I'm going to share with you, I, heard, I, I read this. I'm going to share with you the prayer That might have been going through the heart of that man and it is the prayer that we live on a daily basis healing God forgiving God I do not know what I most need I only know that when I'm brought into your presence I will be both healed and forgiven there are so many close to you who know how to pray who to listen pastors ministers and deacons the popular and the successful, the wise and kind, in a crowd of witnesses, I cannot reach you through the saints. I do not want to be carried. I know my friends love me, but their care makes me feel trapped. In my own immobility, it is terrible disequilibrium to trust others, and I will owe them so much. Do you see how people think that way? I feel the words of release from the illness of guilt and the guilt. And the guilty illness From the date rape and the incest The anorexia The addictions This body shifts Heartbreaks Healing God Forgiving God You are glad they brought me I can see it in your face And I am glad I was carried here See how it changes now Healing God I'm going to read it again Healing God, forgiving God You are glad they brought me I can see it in your face and I am glad I was carried here. Lift it up and lower it down to hear you call me child and send me home. What a beauty. That's exactly what Jesus is. Jesus said to him. Let's read it. <coughs> Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's, there's an error in the translation. It shouldn't, not, it shouldn't say son. The Greek word utilized here means my little one. It's a term of endearment. And why would Jesus use a term of endearment at this moment? Because this man feels he's not worthy of being in his presence. Because this man is so wrecked up in his guilt and in his pain that he cannot bear watch the face of the one who will heal him. So he turns to him and says, My child, you're not just anyone. You're my child. You're the one I will die for. You're the one that I will go to the ends of the world, to hell if I have to go and come back for you. You're the one that needs me and I am here for you right now. Right now. Now, and you, first of all, need to be forgiven. Now, you see the reaction of the people of the church. You see the reaction of the people of the church. You see the reaction of the people that are there. The ones who should have given him access to that forgiveness. Oh, who says he has the power to forgive? And I love Jesus. He gives him a beat. Sometimes I want to be like that. I want to be able to give people some beating. Thank God I don't do that. When Jesus perceived, I'm going to verse 8. When Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. Why is Jesus using those terms? Because they were supposed to be the ones who were supposed to bring him to forgiveness. Because that paralytic man went to them first looking for that forgiveness. Looking for somebody who would take them to the place where he could find forgiveness to his sin, for his sins. And they just turned around and gave, them, gave him the cold shoulder. So Jesus is addressing them too. You you had the opportunity and you didn't do what you were supposed to do. So now that he comes to me and I do what I'm supposed to do, you stand in judgment against me? I tell you, what is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, take up your mat and walk? Well, so that you know that the Son of Man, and he is talking very clearly and I can see him a little bit angry at this time. So that you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sin. I tell you, my son. Once again, he uses the same term. My child claims him as his own, as his own and he says, I tell you. Rice, take up your bed and go to your house. Now the friends disappear from the story. Why, why did they disappear? Because they had accomplished their job. They did their job. What was their job? We are the rooftop people. We are the rooftop people. We are pastors, deacons, deaconesses, social workers, psychiatrists, spiritual directors, brothers and sisters from the University SDA Church. We are 12-step sponsors, parole officers, therapists, many disciplines, many things. We are the rooftop people with faith in our faces. We find the paralyzed one, the one who cannot come to forgiveness or inner healing who is immobile with the past and we gather others to help us carry him, to help us carry her to the presence of healing place. We are the rooftop people, strong with the skills of perceiving pain, of asking questions, of listening to the memories. We all carry an inflexible person on a mat woven of words and trust. We come to the place of healing and it is too crowded. And, he, and we knew it would be. There are too many emotionally broken, spiritually wounded in this world. How can one patient, how can one client, one friend, one ill person, one sick person get through the press of people in clinics, schedules, meetings? God, you are there. And we could reach you because we are agile and mobile. But this person, still with pleading eyes, prone with pain and lock joints, could never excuse, shift, dodge, push, shove to the center of anything. We are the rooftop people. We look for another way in. We climb into a new perspective point and begin to dig up the roof, roof mud where God dwells. We try other methods. We take risk. We answer late night phone calls. We refuse late night phone calls. We ask others' opinion and then the roof is gone. And the opening of the heart for the spirit, for the psychic soul, is only big enough for one. We are the rooftop people. We participate in healing by having a rope long enough for someone to go away from us without, without falling. We see what happens from a distance. God forgives and God cures. No one understands why it doesn't matter which comes first, but we do. There are two parts to every healing. And the second one always means picking up and walking away. We are the rooftop people. We watch our mats be carried away. We do not need to hear goodbyes. We retrieve the rope of our energies and breathe freely. Of course, we also hear anger. Some people don't want others to have a chance for health, but would rather label them addicts, crazy, Victims, manics, ex-cons, neurotic welfare moms, homeless, and would like us to give up on them too. But we will never, ever do that because we are the rooftop people. Pastors, chaplains, deacons, deaconesses, leaders in our church, not leaders in our churches, church members of the church. University SDA Church, we are 12-step sponsors, parole officers, therapists, many other disciplines. And all that matters, gentle healer, is that you look into our faces and smile thanks to our faith. And we hurry through the crowd ready to weave another mat, to lift up another frozen child of God, to scramble wildly in roof mud, to lower away till the rope burns in our hands. And your love from a distance is all the joy we ever need to hear. Because we are the rooftop people.